You are now listening to Chakras and Shotguns. Welcome to Chakras and Shotguns, episode 40. I'm Jen. And I'm Mick. Welcome back. So how you doing? Spring is sprung, darling. Yes, it has. Yes, you it can't has. go outside without smelling like outside. <laughs> We're trying to walk more and you come back in, you got to take another bath. That's Texas for you. Mm-hmm. I'm also feeling this, like energetically feeling like spring is sprung. Yeah. There's so many things that you and I were trying to kind of put into place and work on and get done and felt like wintertime was like rest, mm-hmm. relax, bunker down, you know, mm-hmm. it's cold, no. stay inside. And now things are moving. Yeah, it's like a physical and energetic shift, right? We're getting out of the house more. We're moving about, walking with the girls, as Jim mentioned. But we also just see a lot of movement with some of the projects. Uh, one of my businesses, The Inner Victory, which is like my Reiki healing practice, it's taking off, mm-hmm. seeing more business, more clients come my way. If you haven't already checked that out, it's theinnervictory.com. You can check it out. Yeah, also my marketing consulting business is doing well. My business partner, shout out to Justin. Yeah, doing well. Mm-hmm. That house that I... In a very vulnerable state shared with everyone that I was working on with a business partner. We accepted an offer to sell it. Nice, nice. So that's very exciting. It was just like nothing, nothing, nothing. You know, just last little things before we could finally list it. And then we listed it right around spring. And that was all she wrote. Yeah. Like right around the equinox. So... Yeah, feeling that movement. Excited to get my hands on another juicy project. And yes. Exciting stuff. I also think it's a good time for us to talk a little bit about chakras and shotguns and our Patreon community. Mm -hmm. So we launched this a while back. Didn't really talk a whole lot about it. You know, we kind of mentioned it in the end of each episode. But I just wanted to spend some time just like telling folks a little bit more about it. So if you do sign up to be a patron of the show, there are quite a few benefits that come with that. We will shout you out on an episode. You'll have access to a library of our breathwork tracks. So if you want to listen to some nice breathwork before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning, you can have that track kind of separated out from the main episode that you can listen to. At certain levels, we also have merch discount codes, monthly merch giveaways, We'll even invite you to a quarterly Ask Me Anything live session with us. And at the highest level, we do a personalized breathwork. So go on patreon.com slash chakras and shotguns. We'll link that in the show notes and go ahead and check it out. Lots of goodies. Lots and lots of goodies. Very, very exciting. (laughs) I hope. You all take the leap and join us on Patreon. It'll be so exciting to have more folks and get some of these other little things that we've been wanting to to share with you all out there. So very, very exciting. 
All right. Are you uh, ready to jump into our breath work for today? Yes, let's. So in the theme of feeling like spring is accelerating, sometimes that can be overwhelming. Sometimes when you're trying to start something new, like spring is like new things are blossoming. And for some of us, that can stir up feelings of fear. For instance, I was actually warned off of the house that I originally bought. Someone told me, like, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And without getting into a classic gin aside, it turned out to be a beautiful project. I trusted my intuition. I listened to my splenic authority from human design. I did my research. I did what, you know, what was needed to be done. And me and my business partner ended up with like this beautiful house. So doing it scared in hindsight, of course, is great advice, but it's something that I have to continuously remind myself, especially when we launch new things and new projects. So I wanted to dedicate this breath work to managing fear. So if you haven't already, find a comfortable seat. Lay down if you'd like. Close your eyes. And we're going to take three deep cleansing breaths. Inhale in through your nose. You can put a hand on your belly and feel your belly expand as you inhale. And exhale, sighing that breath out through your mouth. Let's do that again. Inhale in through your nose. Holding at the top. And exhale, sighing that out through your mouth. Last one. Inhale in through your nose. Sealing your lips. Relaxing your tongue if it's stuck to the roof of your mouth. And sigh that. And exhale out through your nose. Now that we're aware of our breath, and we're in a comfortable position, I want you to think about something that makes you afraid. And that could be launching a new business. It could be starting a new job. It could be being vulnerable in a relationship again, worrying over your kids or your parents. And I want you to honor that emotion. Try not to feel that emotion in your body. We don't want you to feel anxious, but almost as if you were an observer objectively 
viewing that fear and what it entailed. Now that you have a subject in mind, maybe you even see it, I'd like you to visualize it as a balloon on a string that you're holding. And you release the string and you let that fear float away. And while that may seem a little silly, the goal is to remember that your emotions should be honored. Your emotions are real. But they are not preventing you from movement, from joy, from what could be. Now in this moment, what I do want you to feel and feel this in your body is the emotion of courage. Do you feel strong? Do you feel grounded? And if you would like to add some visualization onto this, Visualize yourself and how you would feel in the best case scenario. Focus on that emotion and that feeling. I'd like to wrap this up with an affirmation. I can take action despite my fears. I am courageous. All right. That was dope, Jim. I I really, yeah, I really got into that one. It made me think about, there's this gospel song my mom used to listen to a ton. And the lyrics were, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but the Lord has given us power. She used to listen to that thing on repeat. And yeah, that's just what popped into my mind. That was my favorite verse growing up. We bonded over that a while back. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. So let's get into our main topic. We are welcoming a guest, someone that we both think is super dope. I've actually known her for a long time. I won't say exactly how many years because then I would feel kind of old. But we did go to college together. (laughs) Her name is Dr. Adia Gooden. Dr. Gooden is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she specializes in providing therapy to people of color. She is a sought-after dynamic speaker who gives talks on unconditional self-worth, imposter syndrome, and Black women in mental health, including a TEDx talk on cultivating unconditional self-worth, which has over 950,000 views. Dr. Dia also has a podcast and online courses and programs designed to help people to build healthy relationships with themselves and embrace their unconditional self-worth. Let's get into it. 
Dr. Adia, thank you so much for being on the show. Let's kick off with a little bit about you. Can you tell us about your background? Sure. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist, and that means I got my PhD in clinical psychology, and I've been trained as both a researcher and a therapist. So I've done, I was sort of calculating it. It's been probably like 12 years of kind of doing therapy at this point, if I include my training. So sitting with people in individual therapy, couples therapy, group therapy, and supporting them on their mental health journeys. That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to go down that path? Yeah, I think there are sort of like two main forces that supported me becoming a psychologist. And one was the fact that I've always been interested in people. I've always liked people. So I'm definitely a people person. I'm an extrovert. And I've always been sort of empathic and then also curious about what makes people tick and why they do the things they do. So there was that piece. And then there's also the fact that both of my parents are are clinical psychologists, which is somewhat unusual. (laughs) But, you know, I witnessed them really enjoying their careers and being able to do a range of things. So they did therapy, they were professors, they were administrators, and really enjoyed being able to impact people and help people in in those ways. And so I think both my interest in people and helping people, as well as the model that my parents showed of like, this is one career path that can allow you to do that, guided me on this in this direction. That's really interesting. I didn't realize your parents were both uh, clinical therapists as well. That's (laughs) nature and nurture almost, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I'm sure there's something in the genes. (laughs) Do you have any other siblings? Are they in psychology as well? So I have two older half-siblings that are my dad's kids from previous relationships that I didn't grow up with. Neither of them are in psychology. My my brother, who's the oldest, does a lot of like cooking and things like that. And my dad actually is an amazing cook. So that may, may be related. And my sister is a nurse. So she's also kind of in the helping helping profession. Nice. I was wondering if, you know, they're like, Oh, here they go. Like mom and dad and Adia, they're <laughs> ganging up on us. Stop psychoanalyzing me. I was <laughs> wondering how like that all went down in the family. So it never really happened to the family. I feel like I grew up hearing my parents sort of assessments of people. So like we'd be at an event or we'd be at church or we'd be somewhere and then we'd come home and then I'd like hear my parents <laughs> analysis, assessment. And it wasn't like they were diagnosing people, but it was like, this is their psychological take on so-and-so and and why they are behaving the way they are. So I definitely grew up hearing a lot of that. (laughs) That must've been rougher, like boyfriends, you know, coming over, (laughs) meeting the parents, like, whoa, I got to make sure I don't reveal any character flaws. (laughs) Come correct. Okay. (laughs) That's hilarious. So let's get into it. On the surface, it seems like there's been an evolution in our collective perception about therapy. I definitely started noticing a swing when COVID hit and everyone was feeling very isolated. I felt like the conversation, more people were talking about being in therapy. They were more comfortable about it. It feels like more people are going 
What are you seeing as a professional? Yeah, I definitely think that there's been a shift. I think more people are going to therapy. I think some of that is is demonstrated in the fact that there therapists are very full, and which contributes to it being somewhat challenging to find a therapist because so many therapists their practices are full and they don't have space to take more clients. So I think that reflects the increasing demand. I think there was something about COVID that felt. Like it gave people permission to go to therapy because it wasn't anybody's fault, right? It was sort of an understandable stressor that we were all going through and we were all acknowledging like, this is hard, this is overwhelming. And so if you need to talk to someone about that, that doesn't mean you're crazy or there's something wrong with you. It means you're a human going through this really challenging experience. So I think that's one of the reasons that COVID increased people you know, going to therapy. It also widen the accessibility of teletherapy, which increases accessibility, right? You don't have to, you know, I used to work in an office that was in downtown Chicago. So you would need to take the train or you need to drive and park and pay a lot for parking. And what, you know, there's so much more that you have to do versus now you could sort of step into an office in the middle of your day or, you know, wherever and sort of engage in therapy, which also increases accessibility. On the on the flip side of that, how are therapists navigating the uptick as well? I've heard little rumblings about therapists getting burnt out. Is that something also that your colleagues are experiencing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's real, right? Like it's, you know, there were some people, though, I don't know how many who sort of during the pandemic, they experienced a slowdown, right? Or they were laid off or there was something where like things were slower in their business. And I think therapy was one of those things that it did not slow down. So we both were as therapists experiencing the pandemic ourselves, trying to navigate and make sense of life in a pandemic. And we were holding space for clients who were experiencing the stressors of the pandemic. And it was pretty intense. And for most of us, we were also doing teletherapy for the first time. And so it was a lot to kind of navigate all at once. And I do think that there are, you know, therapists who are kind of tired and and worn out and worn down from it because the demand hasn't necessarily decreased. I think the stressors that like if I think about my caseload, the stressors that my clients are having are are lower now. Like people seem to be doing better as the world is opening up and things are more stable. So there's less kind of heaviness to hold in the therapy room. And it was it's still been a really intense couple of years. Got it. So definitely feel like overall there is this shift going on but speaking specifically about BIPOC folks you know I grew up if you had any sort of mental stresses going on it was baby just go pray and you know it'll be okay and only quote-unquote crazy people are the ones who go to therapy are you seeing I guess the same shifts within our communities that we're seeing kind of overall with the pandemic as well yeah I definitely think so and I think The shifts have been happening for a while. I think they're very much helped by Black celebrities who talk about going to therapy. Like, I think that, you know, Taraji P. Henson and other people who are really sort of championing this kind of issue of like, let's take care of our mental health, Black people. We deserve that. I think that has been really helpful. Um, 
you know, I think it's it's so interesting how we sort of make up these narratives around like, well, if you're going to therapy, maybe you don't have the faith and you should just pray it away. But nobody would say that if you had a heart condition. Well, I mean, maybe in some very extreme sex, like very extreme, they would say like, well, why are you going to the doctor? But generally it's like, okay, you got a heart condition, go to the doctor. There's no sense that like going to the doctor and taking, you know, medicine for your high blood pressure is counter to having faith in God. And yet with the mental health arena, somehow that has been the narrative, which is unfortunate. But I really do think that's starting to shift. I think especially with like millennials, right? There is more of like, no, we're going to take care of our mental health. We are going to, you know, claim that space. We're going to, you know, address these traumas. We're going to address intergenerational cycles and all of those things. And I definitely feel like that's a big shift for BIPOC communities. It's been interesting seeing how that whole shift has kind of turned. And we spent a lot of time talking about our parents and like thinking through how they grew up and what they're comfortable sharing and not sharing and how emotions and things were discussed in the home and seeing like the direct correlation between how millennials approach things versus older generations and the boomers approach things and why they don't like to talk about things. So why would they sign up to go to therapy? Yeah, no, I was going to say it is interesting. And I, so I don't have this client anymore, but I had this sort of honor of working with a client who was in his 80s. And I just felt so like, wow, this is incredible that he's coming to therapy. But it was his granddaughter that was like, you should go to therapy. Like, you should try. And he was open enough to be like, okay, right, I'll try it. But it is such a, the generational divide is pretty significant. And I think exploring how our parents and grandparents grew up helps to give us sort of empathy and compassion for them and say, okay, you know, they were doing the best they could given their circumstances, given their environments, given what they knew. And now we get to sort of take what worked and leave what didn't and forge a new pathway forward. So I personally kind of empathize with that granddaughter. Uh, I've had like a lot of friends and family who I've been trying to work with and, you know, suggest therapy. I feel like they could really get a benefit from it. But I think they've had a hard time kind of opening up to the idea. And even if they are open to it, they've had some challenges when it comes to actually trying to find a therapist. Do you have any advice or or tips on how to find a good therapist and ways you can kind of help make that easier for folks who may be a little bit hesitant? Yeah, I think, first of all, sort of thinking about who are the people that you're going to feel most comfortable with? And I think often for Black people, for BIPOC folks, like we want to be with somebody who looks like us. And that, you know, makes sense because it feels like, okay, that's at least one thing that I don't need to explain. And if I'm venting about my job or I'm venting about being in XYZ predominantly white environment, I don't need to worry that you might question me, that you might not understand what I'm saying. And so, I think sort of looking for a therapist that you sort of at least off the bat think you might feel comfortable with. I personally, like my therapist, the therapist that I saw for about four years or so, she was a white woman and she was great. Um, And so, and so that was fine. But, you know, looking for someone that you feel comfortable with, I think, 
you know, the therapy for black girls directory is a great one. So there's a directory on therapy for black girls. I actually think that even if you're not, you know, female identified, you could use that because basically it's black women therapists or it's therapists who work with black women and girls, but most of them will probably also work with non, <laughs> non-women. Um, so it still could be a good place to look and you can search based on your zip code and where you live. Psychologytoday.com is also another good directory where you can search based on your insurance, based on where you live. You can even search based on specialty. So if you're like, I really want to work with someone who knows about trauma or anxiety, you could search based on that. Um, You know, if you're having trouble finding someone who takes your insurance and you want to use insurance, your insurance should also have like a listing of providers who are in network with them. So that can be another way to search. And then you usually don't get very much information about the provider, like usually get their name, their phone number, and their address. But you could then Google them, look them up on some other platforms, figure out, you know, what is their racial, ethnic, ethnic identity? You know, what do they focus on? What do they specialize in? Um, and kind of look that way. And then, you know, you can sort of do outreach, right? I think you can ask to have a phone consultation where you talk with someone for 15 minutes to sort of get a feeling for, does this seem like a good fit? Does it seem like they have experience working with people like me, even before you, you know, schedule a first initial appointment. And then you just pay attention to how you feel. Do you feel comfortable? Does it feel like the questions they're asking you feel aligned with what you want to talk about? Now, there's some questions that we just ask everybody because that's sort of our ethical responsibility to do some assessments. But, you know, are they going in a direction that feels aligned? You you could ask them, do you give homework? Do you give strategies? Is it more exploratory, right? Those are all sorts of things that you want to feel out because different therapists have different styles. And just you know, some styles are going to work for some people and some styles are going to not work for some people. So it's partly about kind of figuring out what works for you. So I have one friend and he says, the therapist is going to ask me, why am I here? And I don't have a good answer for that. How would you respond to to someone saying that? <laughs> that's a, that's a, so I guess one question is like, what is, what is quote unquote a good answer, right? I think, you know, in depictions of therapy on TV, they're always, almost always problematic because it's dramatic. (laughs) And most of therapy is not dramatic. Like most therapy sessions, people would be bored because it's like, okay, they're just, you know, they're talking about something relevant to the person, but it's not like, exciting and interesting, you know? And so I think it's fine to go into therapy saying, you know, I want to talk about my life or I want to process my experiences or I want to, I want to be happier. I want to be more content. I, you know, I want to have a space where I can talk through what's going on in my day to day. Right. And I think that is fine. You don't have to have a big reason to go to therapy. And often in the process of, you know, having some of those initial assessments, therapists have questions that they ask everyone. That's where things are uncovered, right? So you may not know what questions will get at the concerns that you have or the things you want to work on, but a therapist can help you sort of figure out 
Well, it sounds like you really are super critical to yourself. It sounds like you really struggle with resting. It sounds like, you know, these things that we could help you with. And then you can work with the therapist to identify goals and things that you want to focus on. So you mentioned trauma. And I think some people also feel like if they don't have this huge traumatic experience, like they feel a little off. But is therapy really for them? Their life's not that bad. They feel like they would just be kind of whining in a session. So if they're not really working on a current issue or something happened in their past, what are some other reasons why they could go to therapy? I think you talked a little bit about proactive therapy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of us, and I think maybe BIPOC folks in particular are used to being in survival mode. Like it's okay. I'm surviving. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not great. (laughs) Right. And so we sort of feel like that's good enough, but I think my suggestion is what if you wanted to get to a place where you're truly thriving, right? Like where things felt great and you're not going to feel great a hundred percent every day. Like that's just not reasonable, but What does it look like to get yourself to a place of mental wellness where you really feel good most of the time and you're happy most of the time and you're not just like middling through life? And so I also think that therapy can be a place where you work on that, right? That it doesn't have to be that you're struggling with severe depression or trauma or anxiety, but that it can be that you're kind of like, yeah, you know, I've gotten to a certain place in my life and things are good enough. But I, I feel like it could be better. I feel like I could be thriving. I feel like I could be engaging in my mental wellness or health in a more proactive way. And I want some support for that, right? Or I notice these patterns that are unhealthy in my relationships and I want to work through those. Or I notice myself hiding at work and I'm tired of doing that. Or I notice I feel stuck in this way and it's okay, but I don't really want to feel stuck there, right? So there's lots of sort of avenues most of us are not in a space where we're like, I am thriving on in every single aspect of my life and I've gotten it all great, you know? And so it's, you know, there can be room to grow, to explore, to, to figure out patterns, to understand what might be holding you back and what could move you forward. Thanks for that idea. I was checking out your podcast, shout out to Unconditionally Worthy Podcast. And you were talking about quick fixes and you were saying that there were, you know, quick fixes that sometimes people will employ in their business and they're kind of like fool's goal. You know, they, they'll give you maybe short term results, but maybe not have the long term impact on your business. And so I was just kind of thinking about that in the context of therapy and mental health. I've seen on like TikTok, people will kind of throw out some mental health tips and then I'll see other people who, who will kind of debate what that person originally said in that first TikTok as if like it wasn't a a good suggestion. And so I was just wondering from your perspective, if you felt like there were quick fixes from a mental health perspective that we should be avoiding. Yeah. You know, it's a good, it's a really good question. And I think the way I like to frame it is that sometimes we do need quick fixes, right? So if you got into some sort of accident, let's say you were on a bike and you got hit or you fell off your bike and you have a big like wound on your leg. You need a quick fix to stop the bleeding, right? Like you need somebody to put some pressure on that, put some, right? Like bandage that up and like stop the bleeding. It's a quick fix. 
But you also need to go to the hospital and get some stitches and get some antibiotics maybe and, you know, make sure it heals properly. And so I think the idea is, is, isn't that quick fixes are a problem, but that we don't want to use quick fixes as a substitute for long-term work, right? And that's when we get into trouble, right? It's when we start only eating snacks when we really need a meal right? Like sometimes you're in the middle of a busy day, you do not have time for a meal. And so a snack is great. Like you need that quick fix, get you through. But if that's all you eat, (laughs) something's going to be wrong with your nutrition. Like you are not going to be nourished, right? And so I think with mental health, quick fixes can be, okay, just do a positive affirmation or just, you know, cope with this. It's, it's sort of more surface level coping skills, make it through the day kind of thing that don't really address the deeper underlying issue, right? So I think of, you know, anxiety, right? So there's a lot of coping strategies for anxiety that are very helpful, right? So you can challenge your thoughts, you can let go of your thoughts, you can do deep breathing. All of those things are very helpful anxiety management strategies. And if you have a deep-rooted mistrust of yourself, of the world, of life, that anxiety is going to keep coming back. And so at some point, you have to explore, where is this coming from? Why do I not trust myself? Why do I not trust life? Why do I not trust that things are going to work out? Like, where does this narrative that things always go wrong come from? And that may be rooted in trauma. That may be rooted in narratives from your family. That could be rooted in so many places. But until you really address that root underlying cause and do healing there, you're going to continue to have the anxiety, which you can cope with and you need to cope with. But we also want to go back and do the deeper work. It's interesting that you brought that up because something that I've been meaning to explore, especially in the space that like Mick and I are in, is toxic positivity. And I wanted to know what does that mean to you and how do you see that come up? Because I feel like part of it is, you know, everybody's like, oh, I'll just say my affirmations. And they're not, you know, exactly what you said. They're not getting to the root. But what are some other ways that toxic positivity can come up? Yeah. You know, I think of the like good vibes only trend and that's always like not set well with me. Cause I'm like, you know, like I, on one level I get it right. Like you don't want people to come around you with a bunch of negativity and complaints and bad, you know, but it's also like, sometimes you don't feel good. Right. And so when there's this sort of like, you should always be happy. And it's like, happiness is an emotional state that comes and goes. And really toxic positivity is trying to sort of like, I don't know, put icing on everything. Icing doesn't taste good on everything. Icing is great on cake and maybe a cookie or a brownie, right? But it is not great on a steak and it's not great on vegetables, right? Like it's kind of nasty. So it's like, you don't need to sugar over everything, right? Some of it is, I think the toxic positivity looks like I should never feel a difficult emotion. But the reality is that we're human, right? And humans experience challenging emotions. And some of that is very healthy, right? If you lose someone or something or a relationship or a job, it is normal and healthy to go through a period of grief and loss and to feel sad and disappointed about that, right? It's not healthy to lose a relationship that you really were attached to 
and then be like, but I'll be fine. On to the next. I'm good. Right. Like you, it's, you know, it's, it's not real, right? Like where's the grief and the grief as my dad, you know, said to me when my grandmother passed away, your grief honors the person, your grief honors the relationship that you have. So if you don't allow yourself to grieve, you're really bypassing or skipping over an important part of your healing process, right? So I think whenever people just don't have a tolerance, and I think a lot of people don't know how to sit with their emotions, right? We were not taught to sort of be with our emotions. That's why I talk about self-compassion as a practice so much because I think it's a really helpful way to learn to be with our emotions, to not run away from them, to not run away from ourselves, to not be judgmental and critical, and to really like process the emotion in an embodied way and release it, which is what we need to do, right? Like otherwise... You, you, you know, you store it in your body, right? Like it ends up getting stuck and that can cause a whole host of health issues, mental health issues, right? Like Mick, I know you're a Reiki healer, right? Like, you know, like I'm sure there's much more that you could say about like what happens when emotions and things like that get stuck in the body and what that does to your energy. But it's like in, in the mental health world, I think about how do I help you sit with this? Be kind to it, be kind to yourself and move through it. And that's true positivity, I think, and true health versus toxic positivity, which says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm good, no worries, I'm good, (laughs) which isn't true. I love that. That's great. I think that's a good segue to our next question. We've talked to some of our listeners who have moved away from religious beliefs that were central to their upbringing and it's caused some psychological dissonance, uh, particularly when they go to therapy too. Have you seen anything like that with your patients and what would you recommend for them? I'll actually talk about myself. So I grew up Christian, my dad's a minister and about, I don't know how long ago, maybe like five, six, six years ago or so, I sort of figured out that Christianity was no longer resonating with me and no longer aligned with kind of really how I see the world and what I believe. And it's been an interesting journey because I there are so many things that I value about the Christian church, about the Black church specifically and the community that I have experienced there and the support and the love, right? Like there's so many things. I even like did my dissertation on Black youth thriving and how that's related to religious and spiritual involvement, right? And so it was an interesting challenge to sort of both honor that, honor that I have really benefited from being in community in the Black church, while also acknowledging and honoring the fact that that's no longer true for me, right? That that being in a community that has beliefs that I that just don't work for me anymore also was sort of uncomfortable, right? And so I was like, it was sort of a process because I used to be like, okay, church every Sunday. And then I started to be like, this is not feeling good. And then I was like, told myself like, you don't have to go. And I'm like, oh, I don't have to go to church. Like, what? This is a revelation. (laughs) And I sort of for a while was like, okay, if you want to go, you can go. 
But if you don't want to go, you don't have to go. And so that, you know, I sort of played around with that. And and then there was also a piece for me of really keeping it secret, right? Like not telling people because there is so much, I don't know, There there's in the Black community and the Black Christian community, it's it's not like the the worry that I had was like, I'm going to be judged, right? Either I'm going to be judged or people are going to try to evangelize me back into church, right? And so there's that. There was also the piece of like talking to my dad about it and like feeling like I'm disappointing him. So there's all of these sort of complicated pieces, right? Like, will I lose friends? Will people judge me? How will my dad feel? I don't want him to feel disrespected. And I think for me, it was about sort of making room for all of it and holding it and not feeling like any of it was bad or like I was making the wrong choice because all of this was coming up, right? Like not feeling like, oh, these things are a sign that I really just should force myself to stay in church, but that like this is part of losing or leaving a community and acknowledging that it was not all bad. Like, thankfully, nothing has happened to me in church that was like harmful or traumatic. So it, you know, it was beautiful when I was engaged and it just stopped working and I want to honor myself and where I'm at. So I think it's sort of about holding that space. And I think that's where therapy can be helpful is a lot of the work that I do with clients is sort of holding that nuance both and space, right? You could both have a really amazing experience in a religious community, or you could have a really amazing experience in some ways and a really awful experience in some ways, and you could decide it's not for you anymore. And we can hold those things together, right? So often we're in a world of polarization, which says if you're going to leave something, you have to call it bad and wrong and you have to hate it. Right. And that's just not the reality of how things go. And that often usually doesn't feel aligned. And so it's sort of like, how do you hold all the messy pieces that are not clear, that are not right or wrong, that are not like, well, those people, they believe that, you know, it's not about any of that. How do you hold all of that together and make room for that? Make room for the messiness of it, the, you know, the feelings of freedom, the feelings of grief, all of those things that come up in the process. I personally feel like I'm in a therapy session right now, like listening to you <laughs> tell your story, you know, because <laughs> we're very much in the same boat, Jen and I, in terms of being raised traditional Methodist for me, Baptist for Jen, and expanding our worldview to a point where we're not in the neat box of traditional Christianity. And I think we're still trying to figure out what that looks like for us on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. And it's just really, I guess, inspiring to hear you talk about like how you've been able to kind of hold all of that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, happy to. I really resonated with the freedom (laughs) and the guilt. Uh, I, I don't talk about my mom a ton on the podcast, but she's, since I left home at 18, every Sunday, did you go to church? Did you go to church? Whew. And I would find myself going and saying, okay, well, now I can say that I, that I went because she's going to ask. And even now, like since COVID, it's like, did you watch church? And so I've started to release myself from that expectation she takes it very seriously. She often mm-hmm. tells me, you know, it's her responsibility to make sure I don't go to hell and all of these things. And so it can be very heavy. 
And even in therapy, when I was navigating it, I think my therapist initially related to me. I think she also is Christian. I'm actually not a hundred percent sure, but she would relate to me on that level. And then I would come to her and I was like, yes, I'm kind of in a tarot. And she, <laughs> I was like, I don't really know how you feel about this. And almost feeling, I was even afraid that my therapist was going to judge me because mm. I have heard horror stories. And, and I think that's part of the process of finding the right therapist for you, but kind of holding my breath, like I'm expanding and I don't know how you're going to feel about this. And trying to forge that new path. So of course the podcast has been a great outlet for both Mick and I, and we're extremely blessed to be doing this in step with each other. Cause I think that can also be very difficult if you have a spouse, mm-hmm. a partner who does not understand what you're doing, what do you mean? And so that's been, we've been very fortunate that way, but Yeah. We are, we are, we see each other. (laughs) (laughs) I actually saw, this is just a funny aside. I saw a tweet this morning and it was funny to me because I said the same thing to my mother. They said they took their mother to a crystal shop and she was like, so do you believe in these rocks? (laughs) And the person said they, they told their mother, they were like, girl, who made the rocks? (laughs) It's just like, we're still under this umbrella together. We're exploring this together. It just might not look like what you want it to or how you see things. I think that's kind of the beauty of millennials and definitely the next generation after that is being more open to we might not see things the exact same way, but that doesn't mean one person's wrong or right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, In that, since we found out that we have a lot more in common on this subject than we initially (laughs) thought, have you thought about your future children and what that looks like? Mm -hmm. If you're comfortable to share. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a really good question, especially since I'm pregnant um, with my first child. And I think that is kind of one of the biggest pieces. Like I can do my own listening and reading and I miss community. I miss having the space to sort of talk these things through and wrestle with other people. But I do think sort of church provides or religious communities provide this container to support the moral development of kids in a way that's different, right? Like we listen to our parents differently than we listen to other adults. And, you know, having those spaces, I think was really powerful for me. So we were sort of joined this spiritual community that was really cool. And it was sort of, it's like a new sort of new life, like interpretation of, of, of religion and spirituality. So that was like a really cool space, but then it kind of dissolved. So then that's gone. So I think that's, it's sort of this open question. My parents did this thing when I was growing up, which is they had sort of a, they called it the spirituality group. So it was like four families And the adults would like read books and talk about them. And they were all like spiritual. Everybody was Christian. So it was sort of still Christian founded. And then the kids would play. And so I've sort of toyed with an idea of like, could we create a space like that with friends who are interested in having these conversations that also supports our kids? But I think that's an open question. I think 
my hope is that we can provide our kids with enough information and exposure so that they can make their own decisions about what resonates with them. I think what I tend to bristle against most these days is anyone or anything who says this is the only way. (laughs) This is the answer to everything. And it's the only way like those things. I'm like, no, it's not like, let me tell you, you like, let me argue against it, even if I'm like, it could be an answer, right? So how do we sort of create the space for our kids to explore these things? And also, you know, if they decide I'd like to become Christian, okay, great. I'm happy to support that, right? Or maybe it's something else, but wanting them to have that exposure so that they can be curious about these parts of life that are not you know, in the tangible that are not in the in the doing, but are more in the being. So I think we'll have to figure out what that looks like. I'm not sure yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jen and I have definitely had some growing pains when it comes to introducing religious practices to our kids. Like we we say grace when we eat, but even thinking through the vocabulary, the word choices of saying God is he, we have two little girls. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want them to internalize that God can't be them, you know, like, like calling God a he excludes women from the divine. If you kind of break it down and think through that. And so I don't want them to internalize that psychologically. And so we are thinking about how we can word our prayers to like not enforce that. So those things are just like landmines as you kind of think (laughs) about how to bring up little kids in a new way in terms of spirituality and religion. so Also on that point, before COVID, we just had our oldest. She was about 18 months when COVID hit. We were already starting, or at least I was starting to stress about what that was going to look like. And I really felt like I was indoctrinating someone who just happened Mm. to be born to be the child of me and my husband. Like That's how it felt. But at the same time, I really mourned the culture, cultural aspect of church. I grew up in the suburbs, predominantly white schools. I have a big family, so I had cousins, but then I also had other friends that were my age in church. And I felt I owe a big part of my cultural upbringing to being in church. And so trying to figure out what that looks like, too even when you get past the spiritual stuff. But then I'm I'm super excited that I don't think my child will grow up with a lot of the fear and the shame, especially around sexuality. There's so much shame, especially for little girls. I remember just like all of this being put on me just for like, I'm evil just in my body. So I'm really glad that we're moving away from that. Yeah. I mean, there's so much complexity there that you just identified. It's like the friends, I, same thing. I went to predominantly white schools, but like had my friends at church who were black and it was like, you know, a cultural immersion and supportive and all these things. And then there was also this lots of gendered stuff, lots of, you know, that was restrictive and, you know, it, it is, it's this challenge. It's this complex mix. And I think when you're thinking about kids, it forces you to really examine and look at it and say, okay, is there a way to create the good parts or, you know, find those good parts and leave out the stuff that was oppressive or restrictive because we don't want to pass that on. So Dr. Adia, you're co-authoring 
a book about Black women and mental health. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why this topic in particular, besides being a Black woman in psychology yourself? (laughs) Yeah, so it is really a book that is aimed primarily at practitioners and clinicians and people who will work with Black women in a clinical setting. So we've sort of, that's our primary focus, but we are sort of expecting and hoping that Black women will read the book itself or people who love Black women will read the book. But the idea is to really try to help people have a nuanced understanding of the experiences of Black women. I think speaking of holding a lot together, right, holding the strength of Black women, the resilience of Black women, along with a lot of the challenging experiences that Black women have and navigate, right? Not painting them as, look, they're just strong and resilient, right? Because that can be a really big pitfall if you go to therapy and your therapist is like, oh, you're just so strong. You're just so strong. You're just so strong. It's like, hey, I'm here to not be strong. I'm here for, you know, help and to be vulnerable and to to say I don't have it all together, right? And we also don't want people to fall into pitying Black women, right? Like, oh my God, you just go through so much. I don't know how you handle it. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's supposed to be a nuanced, you know, representation of what Black women experience from, you know, stereotypes to trauma to the strong Black women phenomena to religion and spirituality and health and all of these things and how practitioners can really think about ways to support Black women's thriving and healing in the midst of all that. And not from a place of being saviors, right? Not from a place of like, okay, let me fix it for you, but from a place of supporting Black women and being empowered and tapping into their strength, um, right? And taking care of themselves and healing. And so we, so I have a primary co-author. Her name is Dr. Donna Baptiste. She's an excellent clinician. She heads up a counseling master's program at Northwestern. And then we also have other co-authors throughout the book who are experts in trauma and other areas. And so it's exciting. I mean, part of the the purpose of the book is to help address the fact that there really aren't enough Black therapists to serve all of the Black people, all of the Black women who really want therapy. And so one solution to that is to help non-Black therapists be able to provide culturally responsive, culturally humble care to Black women. And that's so that's part of the aim. We got an awesome review from a Black woman psychologist who said that even reading the book felt healing for her. And so that feels really powerful too. We share some of our own stories. We share case examples of women we've worked with. And, and we really just try to make it relatable, inspiring, and also practical. So when is the book coming out? Where can we buy it? So the book's coming out. It should be out in like November, December of 2022. So this year it's being published by Cambridge University Press. And I mean, I think you could be able to buy it everywhere. Okay. I'll keep you posted. We just like, we're getting through the like, write the book. And we finally submitted it in January, which felt so good to like, give them the manuscript after many, many drafts and iteration. So we now it's sort of like on the publisher. And uh, we'll we'll get updates. But I think it'll be like, you know, you can buy it on Amazon, you can buy it all the places. Yeah. Well, once it comes out, let us know, we'll we'll plug it on the show once it drops. (laughs) For sure. That's amazing. I, I I love the entire concept. 
especially as a mom and an employee and like juggling all of the things and you hear that, oh, you're so strong, you're so strong. And I'm just like, I want to lay my burdens down, Lord, I'm tired. It's just, help me. (laughs) So I love that. I love that. I think that's, it's, that's so beautiful. Thank you. So a question that we ask all of our guests is our bug out bag question. So beyond items needed for survival, what is one unique and maybe to others non-essential item that you absolutely need to have in your bug out bag? I think what I'd say, I mean, it feels like a cop out to say like my, I here's what I'd say. I'd say headphones so I can connect them to my phone. You know, it's like the phone feels kind of like a cop out, but basically I want to be able to listen to music. I want to be able to dance. I want to be able to move. I want to be able to do that. So probably not AirPods because they lose their charge very quickly and then they'd be useless. (laughs) (laughs) Like a cord, a corded headphone that I could plug into a phone or, you know, some device that has music on it, that has lots of music and maybe some podcasts and things to just listen to so I could both move my body and stimulate my mind. Of course, the, the therapist is thinking of ways to ensure her mental health is good. Yeah. She has the bug out, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Adia. Before we go, can you just let folks know where they can find you? Sure. So I have a website, dradiagoodin.com. You can learn more about me there. I'm also on Instagram at dradiagoodin. I'd love to connect with folks there. And as you mentioned earlier, Mick, I do have a podcast called Unconditionally Worthy, where I talk about supporting people on their self-worth journey. So if that's something that you're interested in, feel free to check that out as well. And you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. This was amazing. This was really, really good. We're so glad you were able to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a joy. We hoped you enjoyed that discussion. It was so much fun talking to Dr. Adia. Definitely check out her website, podcast, and Instagram account. She has great content and she's super vulnerable, which I always appreciate in sharing her own journey with mental health and self-worth. So it's really beautiful to see. All right, guys, as always, if you have a question, please email us at chakrasandshotguns at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube at Chakras and Shotguns. If you'd like to join our Chakras and Shotguns community, you can support us on Patreon. And finally, if you're loving the show, please subscribe and give us five stars wherever you listen. Namaste. Namaste.